This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Chris Nelson is a bibliophile. I don't really know how else to describe him. I like to, when we have guests on, I like to introduce them rather than just giving like a job title or a traditional bio by what about them made me want to have a conversation with them. What about them is really interesting to me and the most unique and the thing that I like to talk to them about. And with Chris, I don't really know how else to describe it, but then to call him a a bibliophile, he's one of the most widely read people that I know, especially in the social sciences. In fact, uh, I visited his apartment one time many years ago. And uh, Chris, I think you know what I'm going to say here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't want to embarrass you, but I thought it was a badge of honor. I walk in and he's got, you know, just books everywhere, bookshelves, books under the bed everywhere. And he had said, you know, yeah, I pretty much only ever eat out. I don't really make, um, make food at home very much. And I said, oh, wow, you have a nice kitchen. And he opened the oven and there were books in the oven. It wasn't a book burning ritual. He just ran out of storage space. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Honored to be here. Thank you. And thanks for telling everybody about my bizarre eating habits. Yes, I'm 900 pounds. I have no food in my oven. <laughs> Only books in the oven and refrigerator now. They're, they kept very cold. For, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, thinking about all the th- conversations we've had and all of the, the things that you have read and kind of the, the knowledge you have to draw from is really hard to focus on what I want to talk about today. So we might cover a couple things, but I, I did think, you know, we could almost do a game where... I just try to come up with the most absurd, crazy topic ever, say like, you know, 15th century monastic views on the nature of, you know, bread or something. And Chris, I'm sure would have a couple papers that would come to mind immediately, but we're not going to do that. I want to start talking about Adam Smith. And I know you're a big fan of Adam Smith, Chris, and in particular, uh, you introduced me to several works of his, and I have to admit, I, I haven't still read most of them, even though you pointed me to them. Um, some of his lesser known works, particularly work on language. Can you give a synopsis of what that's all about and why do you find it interesting? Yeah, so I, I find Smith's thoughts on language interesting for two reasons. One, for, for scholarly interest, but but secondly, just because well, I think they're objectively interesting. So I can talk a bit about his views on language. And if we want, we can talk about some of my my other interests in Smith and language and ways to connect that to his thought. Smith's theory of language is essentially sort of a, it's a conjectural history. So a lot like a lot of what the Scottish Enlightenment does, you know, Hume's conjectural history and natural history of religion, John Miller's conjectural history about the distinction of ranks. This was a common method at the time. So for Smith, language is sort of an evolutionary story. And when you say conjectural history, you mean essentially, um, they're doing a history of something that you can't really go back and track sort of factually this happened at this date and then this happened, but you can using logic identify almost a necessary progression. Yeah. It's a philosophical, it's a theoretical history, right? Yeah. I mean, it's something that it feels right. It's serving a purpose. Of course we can't go back and understand like what cavemen did, you know, how it was they actually spoke at the beginning, but we can sort of, we can conjecture about it. We can theorize about it in ways that are hopefully helpful, elucidate what we do now. So, uh, uh, for Smith, he describes these savages. I always happen to think of them as cavemen for some reason. So there are these cavemen in these cave and what they try and do is like, they look outside and say they see a rock 
They see something they want to describe. Well, one caveman utters some sounds. The other caveman sort of picks up that, okay, you're uttering sounds in reference to that rock. That rock must be that guttural noise now. Like that, we're, we're giving it a name essentially. Um, so what happens is these two cavemen agree upon this sound or this set of sounds or the set of words to identify and classify this rock. And what they do is they start assigning the same set of sounds or words to anything that looks like the rock. So they'll look outside a little bit further and they see a second rock and they go, hey, it looks a lot like the first. So they call that thing a rock too. And this sort of process goes on and on. If they were to walk across the valley to a different cave and saw similar rocks, they would do the same thing. But the interesting thing is the cavemen in those caves wouldn't know what they're talking about. So for Smith, in the very beginning, the earliest formations of language, language is incredibly context dependent. Mm. So ultimately, for Smith, language is a story, it's evolutionary story of this move from context dependence to context independence. Mm. Um, but in the beginning, this, this idea that we just sort of want to classify like objects with like names, it's, you see a lot of modern examples of this. You sort of see children refer to anybody they see that's like an adult as mom and dad, even if it's not really their mom or dad, because they don't really know what those words mm. mean. They just know that, oh, my mom and dad are mom and dad. It's just this name I assign. Mm. You sort of see like, uh, if I'm from Los Angeles, uh, every time I go to the Middle East or something, it reminds me of California for some reason. I end up saying, oh, it looks a lot like California. I'm just sort of using the sort of similar categories to sort of describe objects that resemble one another. So it's almost like the in the local context, the development of language is a is a process of um, almost decontextualizing things, trying to make them more universal. So it's not just this rock that we use this sound uh, or word for; it's all rocks. Uh, we're trying to to draw parallels between like things so that you can remove the such a heavy context dependence uh, and make it more broadly applicable, but that applicability is entirely dependent on the context of the other people you're with. So in a, in a given culture, you can see all rocks and make a, a single word to, re to identify all of them, no matter how far away you travel from, from the familiar. Um, but anyone who's not a part of your group is not going to, they're almost starting from ground zero. They're not going to be able to have that same um, you know, universality. It's, it's a, you know, it's almost like trying to become supersede context dependence within a context. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. You know, there's something sort of paradoxical here. I mean, it's, it's interesting now. Um, I mean, language, by the way, is, is one of the greatest proofs that humans are ultimately shaped by the culture and society in which they live. Right. But while at the same time, the individuals that live within a society are helping to shape that culture. So there's this kind of like circle within circle, right? It's one of those, it's one of those really frustrating things because it's a spontaneous order because all of us, there's, there's almost no barrier to entry. Everyone is free to jump in and try to impact and alter the language, but almost nobody is capable of doing it <laughs> individually. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, but the weird thing, right, is that we go from this context dependence but we, but we now live in a world in which language is at a point, the capacity for language is at a point where I may not be from a similar language community as, say, someone in China. And yet, here's the thing, we may have different words for rocks, but remarkably, we can find a way to translate those words. We actually are describing the same things. And that's pretty cool, actually, so that there is this way that language has evolved to the point where, sure, individual languages individual people within those language communities are shaped by the language. And yet there's still something somehow more universal about the very capacity for language that allows us to communicate across borders.
What it's do you pretty think? Cool. Yeah. What do you think is, is there's maybe a, a chicken and egg question here in terms of trade and commerce across borders, across people groups, you know, you, you tend to think language is the first most fundamental um, medium of exchange, really, you're exchanging ideas that has to emerge for a society to exist. But then societies, um, different groups will will trade resources with each other. And often in history, they've done this even without speaking each other's language. So in other words, the money or the utility to be gained from trading my, you know, uh, squid for your goats um, can overcome an inability to speak the same language. And then when you establish trade routes over time, like between the US and China, for example, people, because they have an economic connection, start to develop a cultural connection and develop language to communicate with each other. So, I mean, is there such, does one have to come first? Do you exchange goods and services first? And then that allows you to start to exchange ideas and languages, or do you have a common language first, or is it just a big messy mix? It's a great question. It's another one of those funny chicken and the egg paradoxes. I, I know what Smith would say is that the interaction between peoples has to precede the the evolution of language to the point that you, you can communicate with people from different languages. But it's definitely the case that if you're frequently trading, you're going to be incentivized to learn the other language. To your, the language itself is going to emerge to meet the sort of the the interdependent needs of the various language communities. But moreover, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to more rapidly, particularly with trade, it's going to more rapidly facilitate that evolution and, 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 you know, incentivize you in an even sweeter way to sort of get beyond those translation problems. So it's, it's funny. I mean, language is going to change. Language is going to grow. Language is going to evolve as a result of interaction. But that react, that interaction is going to very, very then rapidly sort of like help the, the language evolve to then meet the needs of the people who want to trade in the first place. So you said Smith's work on language has some insights or connection to his thoughts, uh, or maybe you said your thoughts or both on specialization. What's the connection there? Well, so in The Wealth of Nations, Smith, on the one hand, identifies the incredible liberating and wealth creating power of the division of labor and specialization. Um, it's one of the most liberating things about economics, right? The fact that anyone anywhere has at least at least something that they're able to produce at a less cost than someone else. Therefore, they can they can trade and exchange that and create value for everyone. But there's this worry for Smith that we may become over specialized. So instead of someone just spending all day making one pin in the factory, we divide some of those tasks and now someone just focuses on one aspect. Well, on the one hand, that's good because you get better at it, you become more mentally dexterous, but at the same time, he worries. You're just sitting there banging away at some pinhead all day long. That might lead to some mental stupor. So there's this great concern for him that the division of labor might have this like dark side. We might become over-specialized. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and just that like not only do we become over-specialized and we almost become stupider or some in some sense in his view, but then we almost feel like, well, we're we're we've got such a strong skill set here, we don't recognize the sunk cost fallacy anymore and are afraid to move on to new jobs altogether. Yeah, I, I mean, there's definitely a very real concern there. I always wonder though, any any argument or claim that is built on things have gotten more this way than they used to be. Uh, and that's part of the reason why they're no good. I'm always a little bit skeptical because sometimes we're kind of forgetting, like if you weren't so specialized, what's the alternative? So uh, somebody who is 
completely a generalist and is and is totally economically self-sufficient, right? Is raising all their own food and doing all these things. Um, you know, they probably don't have a lot of time and scope for cultivation of a life of the mind or the the search for meaning and fulfillment uh, because they're you know one one meal away from from death, uh, subsistence living. Even though being highly highly specialized and banging on a pinhead all day is in and of itself kind of a crappy job that might make you unhappy if that's all you did. It also, in an extended marketplace, um, because of all the the efficiencies it brings about and the wealth opportunities it brings about, you probably have to do that a lot fewer hours than you would have to put into work more generally if you had to sustain yourself. And that frees up more time and resources for you to do things completely unconnected to your daily survival. Um, and find your meaning and happiness in other ways. And that's a trade-off that maybe a lot of people don't consciously think about, but I think a lot of people, if they did, might choose. They might choose to say, yeah, I'll work 40 hours a week doing something that's really boring if it gives me the resources to spend the majority of my time uh, reading books and walking the beach and doing what, what, whatever else. Do you think there's a, a trade-off there between not getting as much meaning out of your work but freeing up your time to, to do other things? And that's a good question. I mean, I think for Smith, I think he's, I think he, he thinks there's a trade-off, right? but I think he's too pessimistic. I mean, the thing is, you know, he's writing in the 18th century about the fact that we're going to, as we further specialize, we're all going to sort of feel this way, alienated. Uh, we're going to lack, we may have the, the, the wealth to go pursue uh, enlightenment, but are we really going to sort of want to do it at the end of a long day? But I don't know. I mean, we've had several hundred years to sort of test this out. I don't know that most people feel that way. I mean, now, now we, we have uh, the robots are the ones that are unhappy because they're uh, doing more and more of that. That's right. But you know, what's interesting is, so one of the other fears for Smith and for a lot of people, particularly in the 19th century, people like Durkheim and others who picked up on, and Marx too, who picked up on Smith's concern about over-specialization is this fear of alienation, right? So sure, we're, we're wealthier, we're freer to pursue enlightenment, but we're further away from everybody than we ever have been so that um, we just go back home to our little our little house, you know, outside the factory. And we don't really get to interact with anybody on a daily basis. You know, commercial society has us so removed. We're, our labor is so divided. We've all moved into the town, out of the village. We don't know anybody. But here's the interesting thing about Smith's own ideas about language that I think sort of helps solve some of these problems. Smith understands that language ultimately gets to the point where it is very context independent, meaning we, we're starting to share a standard idiom. Again, that's the thing that, that's that very capacity that allows us to say, interact with someone from China or something from a different language community. So if that's true, what that means is that while there are more specializations than ever, you know, there are more people doing various discrete tasks like banging the hammer of a, of a pinhead, in a way, the specializations have never been closer together because there's a greater degree of homogeneity between people and between tasks. So look, if you're unhappy with a job, you can actually leave. Sure, there's there are transaction costs, don't get me wrong, but they're but they're much less significant than they would have been way back in the day. We just have a lot of occupations now. They're not these like alienating cul-de-sacs of specializations, you know, related to the point about poverty and, and things like that and the amount of wealth we've created. It's really interesting to note that we still have farmers today, but we don't have peasants anymore. Farmers yeah. is just another job, you know, and that's really something to reflect on. And to be optimistic about in the grand scheme. That's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that immediately that Monty Python scene came, came to mind where they're, the peasants are just, I don't know, scooping up piles of mud and <laughs> the, the worst conditions imaginable. That is interesting, though, that that's a great one line 
way to sum up what's happened. We still have farmers, but we don't have peasants. All right. So I want to, I want to connect this idea of specialization and the potential downsides of it um, to the issue of the, the social sciences more broadly. So there is a way in which I think the, the worry about specialization is, a, is a, maybe a lot more valid um, or there's a lot more cause for concern than the worry about specialization in, in sort of the general economy. And that is in certain fields and particularly um, in the intellectual disciplines, in the social sciences, there is a common worry expressed by many people. Uh, Smith himself was a, was a generalist. Most of these guys you mentioned, Scottish Enlightenment, today we would see them at least as very, they, we don't, you don't even know if you should call them a philosopher, a historian, right. an economist. They're just interesting social scientists. But today, in academia especially, there's a real high degree of specialization, so much so that um, I've had T.K. Coleman on here several times, and he always makes this case that there's no such thing as a philosopher. If you go and ask somebody at a university, you know, or as somebody who knows philosophy, like even somebody who is one of the, the world-renowned, you know, cosmologists, um, doesn't really know anything about political philosophy, or is very weak on ethics, or vice versa, because of the specialization. There are obvious benefits to that, just like in the economy. But is there something different about specialization in the social sciences that makes it more detrimental to the discipline itself? It's a good question. I, I sort of feel like, particularly after reading Smith, you, you, you're, you're supposed to walk away with this feeling that, yeah, we should lament. We should lament the over-specialization even in the social sciences. It's tough. I, I think I'm of two views. I mean, on the one hand, I lament it myself. On the other hand, I sort so, of think, So you're well, an economist now, giving me the one hand, other hand explanation. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's right. That's right. I should chop one off so I can only have one thing to say. Yeah, I mean, I sort of look at it this way. I mean, if, the special, if specialization in general is about creating more social totals, well, then look, it's like the fact that through over-specialization of the social sciences, we have more knowledge. Well, then I think on the whole, it's a good thing, right? So I can't limit it too much. But it's, it's an aesthetic judgment, in my view. I mean, it's a shame that I can't know everything. And the fact that there's been an explosion in the various sort of sub-disciplines type of research, it's, it's a bummer. At the same time, though, you know, one thing I found um, after I left undergrad into grad school, a lot of my friends that followed me into grad school in different disciplines, I realized that it took us about a year to realize that we were actually still saying the same things to one another, but we'd learned new vocabulary. So we had to spend about a year relearning one another's vocabulary just to be able to sort of take the conversation forward. And to that extent, it's a real shame that the, that the social sciences are so divided. So I sort of think we need to find, we need to create better opportunities for the various social scientists to come together, to create more platforms for them to discuss ideas, whether it's journals, whether it's conferences. I mean, we've both been to Appy. That's an amazing opportunity for political economists and philosophers to, to discuss these things. And I actually am seeing an important trend in, in, in scholarship and the social sciences in general towards a reintegration of politics, philosophy, and economics. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've always felt like if philosophy is the master discipline, which I, I think it is, um, you know, depending upon how you define it, I think economics, or at least the economic way of thinking is, is if not the master and indispensable, um, approach to all of the social sciences, just, just recognizing, you know, rational choice theory, recognizing the actors involved, whether you're studying history or, or sociology or political, um, economy that they are, 
self-interested, not in a good or bad way, and are pursuing what they deem to be the, the most rational course of action, given given the the beliefs and constraints that they have. Um, that alone, trying to to use that doesn't mean you can't get into the normative stuff about right and wrong and motives. But if you only fall back on, oh, this person did this because they're evil. Oh, this person did this because they're a great leader. Instead of looking at the incentives around them, um, I think you can get flabby intellectually. And, and I, I always am sad when I see sort of good, interesting historians or philosophers get completely lost when they when they try to explain why counterintuitive things happen because they they aren't able to draw into that uh, economic way of thinking because many of them have never been exposed to it. And so they're just sort of grasping and clawing for explanations based on the goodness or badness of the people involved or irrationality or things that may or may not be true, but they don't really have any explanatory power. Um, that's a way I, I think I would love to see more cohesiveness in at least in the tools used by social scientists. Absolutely. And I think that's one area where I'm seeing some exciting work. I mean, particularly within the scholarship of classical liberalism. I mean, there's 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 a point now where a scholar at in political economy at, at George Mason University and a philosopher at the University of Arizona are almost uh, interchangeable. I mean, Pete Betke could be a philosophy professor and David Schmitz could be an economics professor. And that's kind of exciting. So they're, they're sharing a lot of the very similar insights, right? It's kind of that, it's not just rational choice, but it's rational choice as if the actors are human and they're <laughs> using those, right? To yeah. sort of place realistic constraints, not only on their political economy and on their case studies, but very importantly, in my view, in philosophy, they're using that to put constraints on uh, just what's possible, right? So this this revolution in, I think, what is being called non-ideal theory is going to produce amazing benefits, and which is going to ultimately, by the way, help reintegrate economics and philosophy. That's really interesting that uh, I love that phrase, as if as if they were human. That, it, it makes me think I've, I've noticed that um, the economists who go really far down the quantitative path and focus on numbers and statistics and things that can be calculated, um, can, you know, sort of the things that, that they maybe envy about the physical sciences and philosophers who get on really far down the, um, romantic ideal, you know, let's discuss political theory, um, what an ideal political structure should look like, you know, if the human beings involved didn't act anything like human beings and could be these wonderful people that we wish they could be? Or, you know, what if we were in a world that looked totally different than the world that we're in? Then this theory would be... Both of those approaches are very different directions, but both of them are almost walking away from the one great advantage that the social sciences have is the subject matter is humans and we are humans. We, to, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we have inside knowledge of our subject matter. And the, the fact that we would kind of walk away from uh, the elements that are unique to the social sciences, the part that like, let's an, um, analyze humans as humans. It's kind of giving away your best, you know, your best asset, your best advantage and, and chasing down social. other things. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. You know what would be great? It would be great if the social sciences, again, were essentially a, a couple of core insights or methods, right? So again, the humanly rational choice, putting you know realistic constraints on our idealizing. And, and what the social sciences as individual disciplines could become would just be, the, if you're a sociologist, you apply those methods 
but to a, a, a social set of case studies. Yeah. In other words, if you're an economist, you know, so it, it, the difference would just be in the types of case studies you find, the types of different demographics, that phenomena, right? But the methods would essentially be the same. Yeah. 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 I mean, some of the most interesting, now I don't read a lot of history from sort of academic historians proper. So I, it could be just be a lack of exposure, but some of the most interesting, interesting history that I've read, certainly in the last five years has been from people who are technically economists and all they're doing is looking at certain epochs in history, whether it's Pete Leeson looking at pirates or, um, you know, maybe David Friedman. I don't know if you would even call him an economist, but looking at, you know, uh, ancient or medieval Iceland or whatever it might be, it's applying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Applying that, that lens of the economic analysis to a historical epoch. It has such powerful explanatory power um, versus just sort of telling a, a narrative tale of history and then coming up with either grand sort of you know, reasons that this had to happen because it was in the air or just moralizing about whether it should or should not have happened. Um, it's just less insightful. So yeah, I mean, some of the best history is done by people who I guess, you know, would not be considered historians. That's right. It's sort of funny. I mean, that's, you know, Pete Leeson is, I mean, again, there's another guy who it could interchangeably be a historian and that's exciting. And that should, that should make historians slightly worried because yeah, they should, I mean, they should, they should listen up. They should take those insights because the problem is, what you're doing otherwise is you're doing humanities. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a different beast. Social sciences, to me, elucidate. Yeah, well, define define the difference. So I, I probably use those terms sloppily and interchangeably because uh, <laughs> I don't necessarily know. What would you how would you differentiate social sciences from the humanities? You know, it's a good question. And, you know, modern academia has kind of helped obscure this, too, because depending on the university, say history is either humanities or it's a social science. You know, there's lots of different things you could do. I mean, if you're econometric, if you're, or if you're, or if you're doing a Pete Leeson kind of law and economic reinterpretation of history, well, you're more social scientific. But if you're doing something more narrative based, almost more political theoretic, well, you're a humanitarian. It's it's tricky. I don't know. I mean, I don't have a hard and fast definition, but I guess I'd say the social sciences are there to help us elucidate the institutions that make the world work. Right. To, to and, try to come up with like. Uh, universal or generalizable principles at play versus giving sort of specific analysis of something, um, I don't know, in a more, uh, or I don't know, would it be maybe akin to, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, so help me if I'm wrong. Would it be akin to um, maybe film criticism as a discipline that can say, you know, all good stories have these different parts, a beginning, a middle, and end, uh, you know, they, they have a, a rise and fall, a climactic moment. Versus just an individual take on, oh, this film was beautiful and I loved this character. Um, I don't know. Is that a fair comparison? Yeah, maybe. You know, you, you kind of touched on something I think about from time to time. And I, I sometimes mean this sort of snarkily, no surprise if you know me. But I, um, I think of humanities often as it's, it's this literary criticism, whether it's history done as humanities or whether it's political theory or certain types of philosophizing. It's, it's theory. What it is is it, it's taking tropes about the human condition and, and what it means to be a human. Again, all fascinating, interesting, but it's just trying to sort of interpret that through these lenses. So it kind of starts to feel a little more ethereal, a little more poetic. It lacks certain foundations and context, right? So a political theorist, for instance, can say, I want to compare and contrast Tocqueville and Heraclitus on a couple of categories. I don't know why. I just think it's interesting. It's poetry to me. And I'll learn something maybe textually or what have you. But social scientists might say, okay, well, what institutions does Tocqueville identify? What methods can I 
borrow? And what case studies can I develop further in a kind of a Tocqueville interaction, right? And so okay. we're going to learn more about the world. I think, I think the humanities are going to teach us more about the soul. So they have their place, but, you know. Um, okay. Okay. I'm, I'm at this. Yeah. So. No, no, I like I, that's very helpful for me to, to, to clarify. Um, so you said something. Uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say it is interesting to put this in a little historical context, particularly because of the way in which the universities um, emerge and, and the sort of debate between humanities and social scientists. There was a time when, of course, there wasn't such a thing as social science. You know, in the grand scheme, it's relatively new. And it's sort of interesting. So getting to this question of are there too many social sciences? Is it over-specialized? Well, if you put it in historical context, most universities, this is going back to the medieval era in Europe, they were dominated by the humanities. Uh, social science grew with the growth of scholarship, of the academy sort of properly understood. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of a nice competitive check on an over-dominance mm -hmm. by the humanities. So for what it's worth, I'm always going to be slightly more inclined to say, hey, even if it's over-specialized, run with it, because it's an important, it's an important check on, on the limitation of growth of knowledge. So you said something uh, a little bit ago about how, as you found in, in grad school, I think it was, you and your friends realized you were talking about the same things, but you were using entirely different language. And that brings us back to the, the earlier discussion on language. And, and I found that really interesting because um, you had said earlier, and I think this is, this is pretty observable and pretty true, that language becomes less and less context dependent and you know, take, take the English language, for example, um, more and more people understand it, can speak it at least at a basic level. We have all these translation tools. It's easier than ever for people with radically different contexts to communicate using language. But at the same time you have with specialization, at least in academics and in, in fields that are very, very language dependent, right? Specialization as an auto mechanic, perhaps that maybe there, it, it, there is an, a, a specialized form of language that develops there as well. I don't know, maybe it's more, maybe it's less, maybe it's the same. But when you have this specialization within fields, you almost get to a point that though you're using English, which is this increasingly context-independent uh, language, you both have become so specialized in your fields that you almost are speaking different languages and you don't have any common vocation. So how, do, how are those two things happening at once where language is becoming less context dependent, but within all these various niches, it's becoming more and more context dependent? Yeah, it's an interesting, again, it's part of one of those paradoxes. There's these circles within circles. I mean, I try and distinguish particular languages from the very capacity for language. And it's that capacity that, you know what, just to back up a second, one of the things that I find so fascinating about language in general is the fact that even with these cavemen who spoke in a very context-dependent way, they always, by virtue of their nature as human species, right, members of the human species, they always possessed this capacity ultimately one day to speak in a context-independent way. So isn't it interesting? That was always sort of there with us. Hmm. Uh, but, but again, particular languages are always going to be potentially a little more context-dependent. That's just sort of what, by necessity, because they're a little more closed off because people in different language communities are gonna have necessarily sort of like a better understanding of particular things. It's just something that's, it's just unavoidable. But again, what's so cool is it's that underlying capacity that allows language to get to the point where, sure, there's different specializations, there's different technical language, there's different, you know, guild language, but there's still a mutual intelligibility. I could be an auto mechanic, I could spend 20 years learning all the ins and outs, I could have all my special technical ways of describing that thing, but guess what? 
I could still ultimately, potentially, like with some degree of translation cost or whatever, I could go learn a new set of insider skills. Mm. So, and I think mm. that's, to me, that's what's so fascinating. That's what's so potentially liberating too about the modern world. It's that standard idiom we have that allows us in a very modular way to sort of cross in and out of things. And by the way, I think that's ultimately what underpins the wealth of nations, right? The, 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 the division of labor is, is you know, limited by the extent of the market, but even further by the extent of uh, this ability to share a mutually intelligible capacity for language. That's what makes us modular. That's what defines the modern commercial society. Mm, that's fascinating. You know, it's interesting how there's this, there's this back and forth that um, specific applications of, of words people can understand an application they've never heard if they understand the general meaning of the word. But then if somebody is always focused on a specialization, their specific knowledge of, of an application of a certain word might be the thing that lets them understand the general meaning for the first time they're introduced to it. I'm thinking of, I don't know, I'm just coming up with examples like the word pivot, for example. If you grow up around basketball, um, maybe the only time you've ever heard that word is referencing a particular move you do on the court. Um, if you've grown up in, you know, a trendy startup community, it's, it's a style of doing business with a lean startup, you know, you pivot your product model and maybe you, you could potentially be in one of those environments and not even know of the more general meaning of that word, which is the reason that it developed both of those specific applications. You could only know of that specific application. Um, but then when you hear it used in a different way, your knowledge of, of your usage of it would immediately make a light bulb go off. Oh, I get it. A pivot. You know, you're shifting your position. It's and it's kind of interesting how that, that happens. But the reason those words became used in those specific contexts is because it, it had a very general meaning that was, you know, I guess, understood by, by people. Um, but that general meaning can be entirely lost and then recaptured again because of the similarity. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I find that really interesting, that process of kind of losing a word's origin and then rediscovering it again uh, through this this interplay. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It, it, it's weird the way when we use words, we're always using them in some way. It, in it, we, we're trying to convey things in general but specific ways all at the same time. You know, so we're we're, we're describing something in some particular context, and yet, yeah, it's it's general. Someone else can pick it up, and I, I don't know. Language is just fascinating like this to me. By the way, you know. There are, there are debates about this. There, you know, I've talked, I've assumed a lot about the, the general translatability of, of all ideas and concepts. There are some linguists who actually think, well, it may not be the case that, say, someone from a radically different language community can, can uh, completely translate. I mean, the word they use to describe book and the word I use to describe book may be roughly similar, but there are some who argue that in other language communities, there may be types of words to describe books in ways that say, in the English language, we don't possess. I'm skeptical about that, but there are people who think that. Yeah, that's something that uh, you hear a lot, um, that, you know, oh, the whatever language has 17 different words for love, and we only have one, um, so our, we're very limited. And You said you're, you're skeptical of that, that some languages are able to give expression to ideas that others just aren't. You think ultimately all languages will find a way to give expression to all the ideas that are important? I think so. And I hear that a lot, too, particularly in the era of BuzzFeed with Internet listicles. I mean, once a week we're, we're <laughs> you know, we're told that like Eskimos have 100 different ways of describing the color snow. But it may be true. It may be true that they have 100 words that the English language doesn't have to do that. But 
But as a speaker of English and other, and as a member of other language communities, I have ways of describing it. It may not be one concise word, but I can describe snow in different ways. It's cold. It's white. It's 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 unique. It's it's beautiful. It's pretty. Oh, it's shimmering. You know? It's silvery. You can describe crunchy, powdery. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I've communicated that right. And so again, I think sometimes I think I think people have an aesthetic preference for certain languages. They as did Smith, by the way. And this is what's interesting. Smith actually didn't like where language ultimately went when it grew in sophistication, when it grew to context independence, because for him, this interaction of different language communities, which necessarily sort of helped evolve language to the point we've been discussing, but for him, it did one other thing too. It made language less concise, less beautiful, less, less vigorous. Mm. He really, really laments the fact that, for instance, Latin, um, there, there, there are Latin words, for instance, that uh, convey certain ideas, which in English, you'd have to probably use two words to convey. He hates that. Hmm. And so that's what's funny. He rests a lot of his views on language on kind of a negative aesthetic note, but I think sort of misses that opportunity to extend it forward. And that, I think precisely because of the aesthetic concern. That's really interesting coming from someone like Smith with so many insights about, um, you know, the the unplanned nature of order and the way that all these individual pursuits can result in a, in a broader order. And language is such a great example of how a rationalist, you know, someone who, who says, I can imagine a world much more efficient and neat and tidy, and I want to plan everything, whether that's prices and production in the economy or language. Even if you think you know that it would be much more efficient if everyone used this one word instead of using two or three to describe the same concept, that kind of just reveals a, a, you know, what Hayek would call the, the fatal conceit, this belief that you have all this information that you can sort of plan society and improve people's lives. And, and we see this messy process where English has far more words than any other language because it just keeps absorbing them and borrowing them. And it's, and it's more widely used. Um, and that's part of the reason it's very messy. And when you can say, Oh, Latin is so much more logical and efficient. There's only one way to pronounce the vowels. There's, you know, English is just crazy. Um, but there's some reason people keep using it and we can't necessarily reason to it from, uh, from a, an outside perspective, but in the mix, in the marketplace, it keeps winning. And I find that really interesting. Yeah, because, you know, like a lot of institutions, like, well, like all social institutions, language emerges to meet the needs of the various speakers. And it's precisely why language begins its evolution once once different language communities interact with one another, because it needs to, because there are now different people who want to interact, who are interacting, and who need to communicate. By the way, what's a really interesting thing is that Smith does not explicitly or really doesn't really completely develop the idea that language is going to evolve as a consequence of trade and exchange. I mean, shocking, right, for a political economist who, who did so much other interesting, had many other interesting insights about the relevance of trade. Didn't really sort of seem to understand explicitly, it at least didn't, didn't tell us, the readers, that, that that's one way in which that would happen. He talks about interactions in terms of conquest, military conquest, occupation. Isn't that fascinating? So for him, this is what's going to ultimately drive a lot of this. And he's right, I mean, because that's a further, that's a further sort of uh, interaction, but a very sort of unfortunate, nasty one. This, this, to me, though, connects with a lot of stuff we've been discussing, like Pete Leeson's work on pirates, David Scarbeck's work on prisons, right? The idea that in the worst possible conditions, you know, prisons on a pirate ship, nonetheless, prisoners 
are managing to, you know, create systems of self-governance on pirate ships, you know, these, these stereotypically nasty guys, they invented corporate democratic governance, right? So under the most harsh conditions, these conditions, these capacities for self-governance existed. And in a similar way for Smith, he identifies that under the worst conditions, you know, war, conquest, occupation, language emerges to meet the needs of the speakers. Just imagine that in a, in a less violent world, just in the modern commercial marketplace with trade and exchange, just think about what language is doing there. It's going even further, right? So it's just a great, it's kind of a, it's, it's one of the earliest sort of proto applications of the necessity and idea of, you know, social cooperation under the division of labor, you know? Mm. Uh, that's uh, that's very very that's very interesting. The things that when you look back, you feel like this person was right on this observation, but never explicitly made yeah. it. That's fascinating. So, I, I want to talk a little bit about meaning because we've been talking about language and the evolution of language. And I recall uh, a conversation with you some time ago where you seem to express some concern. That's a, a pretty common concern about the meaning of words changing over time. And in its worst conception. It's like this Orwellian doublespeak, you know, he who controls the language can control the minds if we can make people believe that truth is falsehood and war is peace. Um, and there's some some concern there about the evolving meaning of of words. I've always tended to to not care that much to think fighting a battle over preserving so-called original meanings of words. Um, it just seems kind of a like a, a losing battle and a waste of resources just Go with whatever the, the the meaning of the word is today, the most popular meaning of it, and use new words if you need to. Um, give me give me reason to be concerned about shifting meanings of words, and I don't care if it's any particular word. I mean, I know like the word liberal means something very different in America today than it originally did. Um, a lot of people are concerned about things like that. Where do you think is is cause for concern with shifting meaning? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I don't know that I'm. I guess I'm of multiple views. Of, I'm here on the comms again with two arms. You know what I mean? On the one hand, <laughs> um, it's a good thing I we're not like an arachnid or something. <laughs> you know, look, I mean, language is going to change. It's going to mutate. It's going to evolve. But at the same time, we should be careful not to sort of abuse the, the, the word evolution itself. We should be we should hold that definition sort of relatively, you know, confined because uh if someone just uses a word incorrectly and that it happens to become popular, that's not so much an evolution as it is kind of an error, right? And I sort of feel like... Um, so you're one of these people that gets mad when when people use the word literally uh, and don't mean it literally? You know, here's the funny thing, you know, particularly in an era of social media where, you know, everyone has a Facebook friend who's, you know, the self-described <laughs> I hate those people. They're so boring because, look, I don't care. I mean, Obviously, I know the point being conveyed. I would just say, though, at the same time that, like, in fact, by the way, I have some fun with this. I'll give away a little secret. If you ever see me I, uh, uh, describe something as terrific, well, I'm playing a game. I mean, I know that terrific actually means terrifying. Of course, it now it's been used to mean good. But a, a generation ago, terrific meant terrifying. So I sometimes give back in, a, a, you know, I sneak in a, 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 a dig on something. I go, hey, that was terrific, you know. But anyway, um, Look, I just sort of think that words have meaning. And although the very capacity for language is this is this mutating, evolving thing that, that emerges to meet the needs of its speakers, that within particular language communities, there are more or less agreed upon def definitions of words. And I just sort of feel like, yeah, you probably should should worry about, you know, what you're saying so that, you know, you sort of say what you mean to say. And that's all. There's there's probably if for the purposes of of pure entertainment or the beauty or uh, comedy 
of, you know, uh, a book, a movie, whatever, using words very, very freely in any way you want to, um, probably isn't that much of a concern, but maybe in the realm of you're trying to have a, a, a very substantive discussion or argument, the outcome of which may be pretty important, knowing the terms that you're discussing and debating and, and making sure that everybody at the table knows what the terms mean is really important. And that's where you see it um, the most deliberately employed by people choosing to say, you know, to, to pick a word that both parties are using and to use it in a different way in order to try to sort of make the other party look worse somehow or to conflate two words. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm very big on separating, the, I think, the word education has essentially come to mean in people's minds the exact same thing as the word school. Um, not entirely, but it's it's a very, very prominent, like merging of words, very subtle. It's almost no one, if you say the word education, will think of anything but a schoolhouse of some kind. And I think that's a very uh, something that we should be very cautious of on the individual level when we're making decisions anyway. If you say, oh, do you think people ought to be educated? Is education important? Um, and say yes to that. Most often the person asking you is then going to follow up with something like, great, then you support money for school or something like that. And they're going to make that switch. And I think, I think that's, that's maybe not so much a, a problem of language itself as much as it is just, um, lazy thinking, uh, that can be manipulated by people who can, can play games with language, but I'm not sure. I, I, I agree with you that there's some concern there, but I, I feel like, um, I guess I feel like people who, who stake their ground on, I'm going to redeem the meaning of the word liberal in America. It's, it's going to mean what it used to mean or what it means in Europe or whatever. It, it feels kind of like a, it's like, why? Like, move on, buddy. You know? Yeah, <laughs> you know? That's right. I mean, I suppose if I had a magic wand, I would like to do that. But at the same time, I mean, you know, we still, we still have a conception of what we mean by liberalism when we use the word, even in an antiquated fashion. So as long as we have that, I think we're fine. Otherwise, it does feel like a bit of a, of an aesthetic crusade. And that has some value, but again, not as much as probably other tasks. So yeah, I don't get too worked up at the end of the day about some of those things. I think that in a lot of cases, the train really has left the station on a certain meaning of words. But in the meantime, we, we, can, we can be precise. We yeah. can be precise when we need to be. And we, we should spend a little time to do that. So I want to, I want to, our sort of last topic, I want to transition from, from words and meanings to labels specifically and the way that labels are used as shortcuts, particularly in discussions of, um, certainly of politics, um, but maybe political philosophy as well. Uh, oh, I am a communitarian. I am a libertarian. I am a conservative. Um, it's clear labels emerge for a reason. They kind of reduce the transaction cost of exchanging ideas. They, they give us shortcuts. When you yeah. say this word, certain things go up in, in someone's head. I mean, I know that, you know, people from back home where I grew up, if they say something like, you know, um, are you going to church or, you know, are you a Christian? What they actually mean by that is really basically, are you doing okay? And that's their shortcut for that, right? And we see that in a lot of different contexts. And there's nothing bad about labels per se as an efficiency, as a shortcut, but they can be really dangerous. Um, where do you think, where do you think, I don't know, how, how should we deal with it? How should we, how should we treat labels and, and should we view them with concern? Is there any value that justifies the, the use of labels as widely as they're used today? 
I, I agree with you. I mean, they're 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 shortcuts. They economize. I think of them almost like religious dogma. I mean, not in the sense of of rigid dogmatism, but literally in in the sense of possessing sort of a bundle of ideas. They're touchstones, right? They're things we can use to sort of like more quickly identify. They're signals. They're signposts, right? I'm using a lot of adjectives here, but there, there's value in that regard. But, um, but the problem, and I, I've seen this recently, you know, obviously in debates about social justice, say, even among libertarians, you know, what does that mean? Well, we're debating this label that we do or don't like, but we're not actually getting into what we mean when we say mm. the term, right? And so we're just having, we're having a hot potato debate, throwing back and forth various labels, often just because we think they're they market a particular set of ideas better than another. It's just rhetoric. It's this yeah, no, that that marketing point you made, there, there seems to be this progression that happens. So you have a, a set of ideas, whether it's religious, political, whatever, and there's some cohesion to the bundle of ideas. And maybe a lot of, uh, a, a large enough group of people have similar enough bundles, you know, 90% of their bundle of ideas are similar to each other. And there's some different, you know, odd ones thrown in here and there, but there's enough to say there's something cohesive about this set of ideas. And then naturally it gets a label because it's a shortcut when you're talking about people with this type of ideas. And what happens, I think over time is when it comes to, when it moves from engaging ideas themselves to, okay, let's market our ideas. Let's evangelize, let's spread our group, uh, our message, and try to get more people to understand and believe like we do, there's a little shift that often happens. And somewhere, and, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with marketing a set of ideas or beliefs or, you know, entering the great realm of exchange of ideas and trying to, to persuade people that yours are worth listening to. But a little switch happens where it goes from marketing or selling or communicating the ideas themselves to just marketing the label. And kind yeah. of forgetting that the label came after the ideas as a shortcut. And so then you get to a point where it's like, hey, you know, 90% of people identify as Christian. Uh, we've won, the Christians say, right? But, you know, if you ask any really diehard church attending Christian today, they'll say, oh my gosh, hardly anybody is really a true Christian. The label was marketed really well. Um, but maybe the content or the meaning wasn't so well. I think libertarianism is seeing something similar. The word is now one that a lot of people know and the label, the word itself has been maybe marketed or like a lot of efforts to, to, to make it look cool and not scary to use that word. And so it's used all the more. It's very unclear whether or not that means more people have an understanding of the classical liberal intellectual tradition, uh, which preceded that label. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. You know, it's funny. I mean, it would be like if the next Avengers movie was just 90 minutes of the Marvel title, right? <laughs> you know, they didn't put any thought into the story, right? And that's what it's become. There's, it's funny, too, particularly with libertarianism. I mean, it's, it's fashionable for every libertarian at some point to get to that phase where they lament all the infighting among libertarians. About, that's infighting is great if it's about sort of trying to, you know, reinterpret to uh, arrive at a new consensus about what those ideas represent, as well as fighting sort of on the margins about what and what doesn't fit within what we call the label libertarian. But the, the, the infighting that's so dumb is the infighting about, yeah, how to best market the label. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's no substance. There's no, there's no philosophical discussion about developing the ideas forward. It's all about, yeah, how best, you know, what, what billboard should we put the word libertarian on? You know, what does libertarian make you feel? So there's all this brand research rather than any sort of work on, what the product is, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, it'd be like, uh, you know, Kleenex brand 
saying, hey, we've got 100% of the market because every home in America has Kleenex inside it. Um, it's just most of them are not actually Kleenex brand. The, the, the word Kleenex has won the day. Everyone adopts it and they call every tissue paper a Kleenex. <laughs> but it doesn't necessarily mean that product has actually won the day. The word had a bigger victory than the, than the idea or the product itself. That's right. You know, to me, though, so much of this stuff comes back. I mean, take any any ideological movement, any movement in general. I think so much of it comes back to what happens over a period of time when the adherents of a particular cause or movement slowly start to forget what it is they're ultimately aiming at to, so that you fall back on strategies, you fall back on tactics. The, the best anybody can think implicitly is just, hey, let's get as many people using this word. And apparently, you know, as if as if labels apparently can like gain political power and sort of create social change for freedom or something, right? As if, you know, labels possess this sort of power in this way. That, um, well, that's an interesting and, and probably unique feature of politics is that unlike, let's say, the marketplace for religious ideas, um, you know, getting people to adopt a label, uh, Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, doesn't, doesn't necessarily swell the attendance at a particular church or synagogue or swell the tithes or, you know, swell the number of people who really believe those principles and live them out in a consistent way. Um, and therefore there's not, there's not a, as much incentive maybe for people in, um, religious beliefs or certain ethical, um, belief systems to go out and just get the label to win the day. Whereas in politics, because it's a zero sum game and in terms of like actual like elections politics, um, which I don't happen to believe actually dictate social change at all, but most people do. Um, and so in politics, getting your label to win means you win an election, which means in many people's mind, you win and your ideas win. And so it's very, very easy to see political philosophies get stuck in marketing labels and individual representatives for their cause uh, no matter how much those representatives may not actually agree with those beliefs or even understand them, um, it's very easy to fall into that. I think much easier than ideologies that are, that are based around something other than um, you know other than than politics or that don't have that connection with with that zero sum world of politics. Mm -hmm. That's right. It's really tricky too for libertarians um, as as a movement because uh, yeah, it's very easy just to want to sort of um, adopt some of those tactics they see that political forces using. But again, I'm not sure that we're political, right? We're kind of that apolitical political <laughs> philosophy. And that's the, that's the paradox that we still haven't confronted. Like as a movement, as, as our movement's growing, as people are attempting to try and shape the movement and take it in directions and argue about how to market its brand, that's the one thing at the end of the day I think they forget is we, we don't want to follow the other path, right? Mm. We're not just in emulating we're trying to we're trying to do something different. That's that's the real challenge. It, How do we do that? I, it, it reminds me of the discussion we had about the social sciences. Why give up your greatest asset in the in the case of of philosophy or economics? Why give up studying humans as if they were humans? That's the one thing your disciplines can do that you know physics physics doesn't have the luxury of studying uh, particles as particles, because we all know what particles are like. We know what it's like to be one. We don't have that kind of advantage. So why give up your greatest advantage? In the case of people who have a, a whether you want to call them libertarians, classical liberals, um, you know, just people who value freedom, people who truly valuable the principles of liberty, the greatest advantage they have is that they are radical and counterintuitive. And the ability to say, you know, 
here is a, a radical uh, stance that springs out of principles of liberty um, that's something unique, truly unique that's being brought to the table in broader discussions on social phenomena. And when the focus is all on marketing, you basically give away the one thing that sets you apart, that makes you unique, that makes you bring something new to the conversation. I mean, conservatives, liberals, centrists, whatever labels you want to give most of the people having discussions about political ideas, they're all talking about the same things. And if the goal is just to get more people to say, I'm a libertarian, you talk about those things too, but you're like the least valuable or interesting voice in the room because you're the last to the party. Whereas if you're really talking about the core ideas of classical liberalism itself, the, the radical stuff, the stuff that's a little uncomfortable sometimes even, that's where you're at your best. That's where you have your greatest advantage. And, and there's a tension there between, you know, um, those who are like, let's, let's try to, let's try to make the ideas of liberty more palatable and marketable. Um, they're giving away the greatest advantage, I guess. Totally. You know, this in a weird way connects back to Smith, too, on the evolution of language. I mean, language changes once we're once we interact with ideas and, and other words that we can't identify and classify. So then we need to we need to update our own language in order to sort of communicate in the same way. Libertarian ideas are radical. They are counterintuitive. They're provocative. And they sort of can shock people out of the, the mainstream consensus. And by the way, not in not just for uh, the sake of being shocking, but because our ideas are radical and shocking and provocative and true. And yeah, you're right. We give away the game when we just, for marketing purposes, because we want more people to like us and to sort of take us seriously. So, hey, cool it on the radical stuff. The problem is we come up with a milquetoast mainstream line. We might as well just join the mainstream. We're no longer different. No one's going to pay attention to us, which is a shame because we do want more people interested in these ideas, but we want them interested in, in the ideas for the right reasons because they're true, not because we're selling them something that's, that's, you know, just more palatable, right? Chris, um, this has been a, a fascinating uh, discussion. I love the way that these, these threads have sort of woven together. Where can listeners find you online? Is there a, should they find you on Twitter, Facebook, uh, a website? I know you do some, some freelance writing. Um, where can they go to, to find more uh, of what you have to say? You know, the best place is Facebook. Um, might be difficult to find me. Chris Nelson is somewhat of a common name, but uh, <laughs> just find the Chris Nelson with the mutual friend with Isaac Morehouse. Feel free to friend me and let's, let's have a discussion. Chris, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you.